to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on December 4th, 2016, on the basis of Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Last week I stood in front of you and told you that you had 28 days. Of course, now we're down to 21. 21 days until Christmas. And just in case I didn't make myself abundantly clear last week, it is a bad idea to try and sort of artificially turn that 21 days into something more than than what it actually is, using any sort of extreme measures such as trying to live and trying to go without any sleep. So I would advise against that. In fact, that's kind of the, the beauty of time, isn't it? Time is a fixed commodity. Everyone gets exactly the same amount. I mean, whether we are trying to get ready for Christmas or or whether we are trying to just accomplish the big and important things that all of us desire to accomplish in our lives, everyone gets the same amount of time in which to do it. When it comes to other things like, like money or power or talent, certainly other people might have a whole lot more of those things than we do, but but not when it comes to time. From President Obama, to LeBron James, to Taylor Swift, to Mark Zuckerberg, all of those people who have accomplished so much in their lives, they get exactly the same amount of time that you do. 24 hours every day, seven days every week. So the big question, of course, is what will you do with it? How productive can you make that time? So with that in mind, I wanted to introduce you to a couple of people today. At least according to one website, these people are among the most influential productivity gurus of our time. Kind of makes them sound like superheroes, right? Here they are. First one is named Timothy Ferris. His book is entitled The Four-Hour Workweek. Basic idea is that you can escape the nine-to-five daily grind. You can live anywhere in the world that you would want to live, and you can become extremely wealthy in the process. I don't know about you, but he's got my attention. (laughs) Next guy is named David Allen. His book, entitled Getting Things Done, talks about a a system, a way of, of getting all of the clutter and all of the distraction that sort of just continuously floats around in your head out of your head so that you can always work very efficiently and very effectively. The third one I wanted to point out today is a man by the name of Craig Jero. And he is known, I don't know if he gave this name to himself or if someone else did, but he's known as the Time Management Ninja. Kind of sounds like fun, right? You take all of the waste, all of the inefficiency, all of the distraction that is in your life and just give it a, a karate kick and say goodbye, right? All three of these men have written best-selling books. All three of them operate successful blogs and podcasts. All three of them have thousands and thousands of followers on Twitter. And I would guess that in just about every way imaginable, all of them are very, very different from the man that we're actually going to be talking about today, this man named John the Baptist. But here's why John the Baptist deserves your attention as much as and and even more so than those men. When the time came 
for God to finally make good on all of the promises that he had made to mankind, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Do you know whom God sent to get the people ready? Sent John the Baptist. When the events that serve as the culmination and focal point of all of human history were about to take place, do you know whom God sent to make sure that the people were being productive in the way that God wanted them to be and that when the Savior finally arrived, they would be prepared? He sent John the Baptist. As we wait for Jesus to come back, as we desire to be productive in the way God wants us to be and be prepared for when Jesus returns, do you know whose message is going to make that happen in our lives too? John the Baptist's. That's why it is good for us to, to talk about and pay attention to the work and the ministry of this man named John the Baptist, whom we might also call history's strangest productivity guru. Now, if you're paying close attention to that gospel reading that I read before, you maybe would understand why the word strange would be used in association with John the Baptist. I mean, here was a man who, who never cut his hair. He never shaved his beard. His wardrobe was made exclusively from camel hide, and his diet consisted exclusively of locusts and wild honey. And when he began to do his work, he didn't go to the city where all the people were, where the most people could listen to him. He actually set up shop way out in the desert, way out in the wilderness, where people would have to take a special trip just to hear what he had to say. Of course, all of that was very intentional. And with all of that, John was communicating a very clear message to those people. If you want to be productive in the way that God wants you to be productive, you need to be willing to leave behind the frantic pace of everyday life. You need to be ready to focus on just the things that truly matter and be willing to leave behind and walk away from everything else. John was promoting what we might call today a minimalist way of life. And of course, that in and of itself didn't make John unique or strange because just about every productivity guru today says exactly the same thing. Focus only on what is most important and be willing and ready to leave behind everything else. Something else, though, made John very strange. You see, everyone else who advocates that way of life, every other productivity guru who is out there will tell you that you have to decide what that is. You have to decide what is important. You need to find your passion and then pursue it. John took a very different approach. John doesn't let us decide. John decides for us. He said this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What matters most? What is most important on what should we put our focus and our attention and our energy? John says the kingdom of heaven. Things that are spiritual rather than things that are earthly. Things that are eternal rather than things that are temporary. The things that matter most to God instead of the things that matter most to us or matter most to the world around us. And to whatever extent we have been distracted by or even become obsessed with the wrong things, John doesn't say 
oh, that's okay. If, if that's your passion, just go ahead and pursue it. No, he says, repent. Realize and acknowledge that as sin. I'm trying to illustrate just how, how strange of a message that is in our modern American ears. Let's say that during this Christmas season, during this month of December, you decide either, either consciously or sort of by default that the things that are most important to you have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. It's all about the presents and the parties and the work obligations and the family fun and almost zero time goes to the kingdom of God, to your relationship with God and preparing for the birth of the Savior. If that were the case in a person's life, we would maybe think that the worst possible thing that could happen this holiday season is for all of it to go wrong. For everything on your list to be left undone. For Christmas to arrive and and you're just not ready. For absolutely nothing to go as planned. We might think that would be the worst thing in the world, and yet John says there's one thing that would be even worse than that. And that's if everything did. If everything did go exactly as planned, if everything on your to-do list got done, if Christmas got here and, and you were ready with every last detail, if you found the ultimate joy and satisfaction that you were looking for in those things. Why? Because those aren't the most important things. Those aren't the things that matter most. In fact, those things cannot possibly give us the permanent, complete joy and satisfaction that deep down in our hearts we are looking for. And so it would be a tragedy if we got the impression that they could. This is the first way in which John is is history's strangest productivity guru. Everyone else would let you decide what your passion is and what is most important. John defines it for us. The kingdom of heaven. And, And wherever we have prioritized something else, John says, repent. We might think that 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 not only sounds a bit strange, but as we think about John's place in history, we maybe think that's a bit stupid on on John's part. We'd maybe say to John, John, this isn't going to be good for your blog. This isn't going to bring readers to your podcast. This isn't going to push the books off of the shelves if you just continually call people to account for their sin. And yet look what happened. Crowds of people flocked to hear him. Thousands, if not ten thousands, went out to hear what he had to say, even to be baptized by him. In fact, one day there was this group of Pharisees and Sadducees who showed up to listen to John and be baptized by John. Now, the interesting thing about this is that normally the Pharisees and the Sadducees were rivals. Both of them were were kind of movers and shakers in society at that time, and each one of them was vying to be the most influential group in Israel in that day. But they had very different approaches and very different messages. The Pharisees were maybe what we would call the, the moral conservatives of the day. They preached a very strict obedience, not only to Moses' law, but also to the traditions of the elders that had been added on to that law. As a result, the the Pharisees were often very condescending and very hypocritical toward other people. 
The Sadducees, on the other hand, are maybe what we would call the liberal progressives of the day. They were the free thinkers. They were the skeptics and the cynics and the secularists. And as a result, they preached a, a much looser and more lax version of morality. Normally bitter rivals, but on this day they, they went out together. They went out in unison to be baptized by John. Why? Well, because they assumed that John was just like them. They assumed that John was out there with the exact same goal that they had that he was out there telling people what they were doing wrong and then telling them how to do it right. Almost like a, a doctor, right? You, you examine the patient, you diagnose the problem, and then you prescribe a solution. And so the Pharisees, they, they had their solution, and the Sadducees, they had their solution, and, and they just assumed that John was prescribing a different solution. And at this point, rather than trying to oppose him or rather than trying to speak against him, they saw the popularity that, it had, that he had and they thought they would just go along with it for the time being. If this was the latest trend and the latest fad, let's just go along with it and hope that the, fa the fad fades. They didn't realize how different John's message was. John wasn't out there saying, step one, you haven't been produ as productive as God wants. Step two, here's how you do that. No, instead, John was saying, you haven't been pro as productive as God wants, and it's impossible for you to do so. But step two, someone is coming who will. This is how Matthew summarizes John's message. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me, comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John highlights two tasks that would be given to Jesus to accomplish. But what's really interesting is that these tasks are not things that Jesus was going to do right away. Both of these are tasks that would be way off in the future. In fact, one of them hasn't even happened yet. John talks about the sending of the Holy Spirit that happened on the day of Pentecost. And then the second task given to Jesus is judgment, to return on the last day to judge the living and the dead. Now, the significance of those two tasks is that the Bible tells us that they were given to Jesus by the Father as a reward for the successful completion of every other task he had been given. They were God the Father's ultimate stamp of approval on every other thing Jesus had been sent to do. So take on human flesh, come to this earth to live a lowly life, check. Live in perfect obedience to God's law in every point, check. Show perfect love for God and perfect love for his neighbor, check. Show perfect devotion to the kingdom of heaven and perfect indifference to things that matter relatively little, check. Finally, offer his life willingly as a sacrifice, as a payment for the sins of the world, and as a result of completing all of that work successfully, Jesus' reward and the Father's stamp of approval when he came back to heaven was to give him the job of pouring out the Holy Spirit 
on his church and eventually coming back on the last day to judge the living and the dead. That's what made John's message unique. In fact, that's what makes Christianity unique from any other system of belief, any other philosophy that has ever been promoted in our world. It isn't step one, here's what you're doing wrong. Step two, here's how you fix it. Instead, it's step one, here's what you're doing wrong. And view that as evidence that you could never possibly do it right. But step two, here's the one who came to do it right for you. That's the biblical message of repentance. And that's what makes John the strangest productivity guru in history. Most people will will point to the problem and then prescribe a solution. John pointed to the problem and then simply pointed to Jesus. The solution for every single sin. Seems like kind of a strange plan, doesn't it? That, That all kinds of good would come flowing from our life simply from realizing we don't have to fix ourselves. We don't have to straighten ourselves out. We don't have to earn God's favor and all of a sudden the good will start coming. Well, when we're tempted to doubt that, like I told the kids, just just take a look outside, especially on a a day like today, and look at those trees. Those trees that right now have no leaves, no buds, no fruit. Do you think if those trees had a mind, if those trees had consciousness, they would be stressing out right now? about that fact? Do you think they would look at the end of their branches and say, holy cow, there aren't any leaves out there. There isn't any fruit. We better get to work. We better squeeze as hard as we can so that that some sort of life comes out. No, even right now, even in the dead of winter, the, the focus and the activity is on the roots. Those roots going deep into the ground, those roots that are are grabbing on to the water and the nutrients in the soil that make that tree alive and healthy. And come spring, try to stop the leaves and the fruit from coming. Friends, that, that's the beautiful picture of Christian productivity. It's not only God's plan, it's also God's promise. That when we repent, when we acknowledge our own sinfulness and our own inability to live up to God's standards, but then cling to Jesus as the one who did, You just won't be able to stop the fruit. It just will come sprouting forth. And so as we listen to the message of of John the Baptist, as, as we repent, it not only is God's plan, but also God's promise that it will bear abundant fruit in our lives and prepare us for the life to come. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.